Okay, today's lesson is lesson number seven, the history of Codex Vaticanus and Sinaiticus. Um, last week we talked about the methods of textual criticism. In the 19th century, this is something that became very popular um, as modernism began to infect not only Germany but cross over into England and eventually to the U.S. Um, and so we talked about the methods of textual criticism. We analyzed Metzger's book, um, or the introduction to his Greek New Testament, in which he gave principles for textual criticism. And uh, we analyzed that last week and talked about the, the ben- there's some good benefit, there's some good principles, and there, but each of them also has some are problematic as well. And we talked about that. Um, uh, some of them are more problematic than others. So uh, this week we're going to be covering the history of two of the most important, um, most and more important manuscripts, and the considered to be the oldest manuscripts found up to date, and is what is the basis of what the uh, today's critical text is, which is the found is what all modern translations other than the New King James and a few, you know, not very popular um, translations. All modern translations like the NIV, the RSV, the NAS, the, the ESV, all of them have been translated from the critical text. And the critical text is based on these, primarily of the New Testament is based on these two manuscripts. Okay, so what we're talking about is really the history of those two manuscripts. How were they discovered? How did we get our Bibles, the modern Bibles that we have today, is what we're going to be talking about. Um, This is also often referred to as manuscript provenance. Not providence, provenance. It's the history of ownership um, of those Bibles. Where did they come? Who had them? (laughs) And at at what year and that kind of thing. So let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17. For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and I will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that, in the wisdom of God, the word world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. Okay, let's open with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your wisdom, uh, the wisdom of using weak means so that your power is exhibited through the salvation of souls, through the preaching of your word. We pray that you would exhibit that power with us today and and be with us, that your presence would be with us as we worship you this day. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to start out with Vaticanus. 
as you can see from my little map here, um, I drew a map of, of, of Europe and the Mediterranean. Vaticanus, Codex Vaticanus, was first cataloged in the 15th century in the, in the library of the Vatican. They don't know where it came from before that. However, it bears the hallmark um, of a very ancient manuscript because of the type of lettering that it had. The Greek letters itself were a very f ancient version of, uh, of Anshalus that were uh, very early. They, they date it to like the fourth century typographically. Okay. Uh, it was stored in the Vatican Library since the 15th century when it was officially cataloged, considered 4th century paleographically, that's the style of lettering. It became known to scholars in correspondence with Erasmus, uh, became known to, the, um, to, to Erasmus in 1521. Um, it is often claimed that Erasmus did not have access to Vaticanus, and that's why he didn't use it. However, Erasmus, um, according to the Erasian scholar H.J. de Young, uh, he provides evidence that this was not so. Erasmus considered Vaticanus to be influenced by the Vulgate uh, because it contained Latinism, Latinisms in Greek. It was a Greek manuscript, but it looked and had evidence that it had been translated from Latin back into Greek as opposed to being an original Greek manuscript. And that's why, Vatic, uh, that's why Erasmus considered it to be inferior. He had correspondence with, with the librarian at, Vatic, at the Vatican, Bombasius, and he could request specific readings. So he could, by letter, say to Bombasius, could you present to me the, the Greek reading of such and such a passage? And he could uh, return that. Um, it became popular, though, in the 19th century because they discovered it differed widely from the Texas Receptus. And at that time, in the 19th century, the Texas Receptus was academically dropping and lowering in pop popularity. And so this manuscript came to light again, and they were like, hey, this is, you know, this is 4th century, this is much better. And they started to, uh, Westcott and Hort-based a large majority of his their first edition of the of the Greek New Testament based on this fat um, almost solely on this particular manuscript. At the time, it was considered the oldest extant manuscript of the entire Bible in Greek. So even the Old Testament was in Greek. Uh, it was uh, the uh, Greek Septuagint. In 1889, uh, a um, in 1890, a photographic facsimile of the whole manuscript was made public in three volumes. This was this was a game changer because up until this point, the Vatican had not allowed a Protestant to go near that manuscript. They were they were not allowed to go near it, um, and uh, it was heavily used in the 1881 edition of Westcott and Hort. And you may be wondering how did they get it. it get it before the facsimile was published. Um, and uh, <clears throat> I believe um, they, had, they had access to it. Uh, though the letter, letter, uh, lettering style tells us it's fourth century, it actually looks like a 15th century manuscript. 
Um, the entire text has been overwritten by a 15th, 15th century monk or scribe, and, and they've added 15th century decorations and titling. Um, so it kind of looks like a 4th century manuscript that was written in the 15th century. Personal names are spelled as they appear in the Vulgate. Westcott and Hort even go as far as to theorize that, the Va- that Vaticanus and Sinaiticus were written in Rome instead of Alexandria, even though they call them Alexandrian texts. Um, so before Sinaiticus, it was the only manuscript that did not have the ending of Mark, verse 9 to 20. Okay. Now you may be wondering, why is that important? Why is the ending of Mark important? Well, the ending of Mark, if we... If we don't have the ending of Mark, we don't have the resurrection of Jesus Christ. His, uh, his resurrection is not there. It, it ends with the women going back from the, um, from the tomb uh, weeping. And that ends the gospel. The women weeping. Um, now, why is this important? It's in the 19th century, the theory, the theory and textual criticism became that Mark was the first gospel and then all the other Gospels heavily borrowed from Mark. Okay? And they did not write their Gospels independently, but based on Mark. So if you can cast doubt on the resurrection, from, this is from a unbeliever perspective. If you can cast doubt on the resurrection, and maybe that account, like the verses after the, at the end of Mark of the resurrection were added a little bit later, and Mark didn't really write them, then maybe the resurrection was also added to Luke, um, Matthew, Luke, and John. And see, then this becomes a naturalistic religion. Um, and so you can see how this would be appealing to uh, the ab- academic world. They were neuterizing the Bible and making it uh, acceptable to them in that it, didn't decla- it, did, it did not have a resurrection. And if you remember my sermon on uh, John and the importance of John when his eyewitness, he said, and I saw with my own eyes, I bear witness and my witness is true. He's like underscoring it. I saw Christ die a bloody death. Um, And then he goes on and declares his resurrection. You can see that the resurrection is foundational for Christianity. It is foundational for whether we believe that the Bible is true or not. How do we know that the Bible is true? Well, you know, Christ tells us it is true. How do we know that Christ is true? How do we know that he's not lying? How do we know he's not just a man? Because God declared him to be the son of God. What does Romans 1 say? By the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So everything that we believe is pinned on the resurrection. And what do the academics want to do they want to remove the resurrection okay so that's very important now we'll move on to Sinaiticus. so we know that codex vaticanus looks like it's a fifth century manuscript it has a whole bunch of overwrite everything's been overwritten and it has titles that are 15th century and that kind of thing however it has this old fourth century lettering style now has that ever happened in the Vatican? Have they ever uh, 
forged anything. <laughs> Let me go through a little bit of the forging history of the Vatican. The don- there's the donation of Constantine. This was pretended to be a document of the 4th century, again, 4th century um, lettering, issued by Emperor Constantine, donating the entire Western Empire to Pope Sylvester I and all his papal successors. So, by the way, you have the entire West uh, given to you. And this was uh, used, this donation of Constantine was used um, to... to, uh, to justify wars, to justify all kinds of things uh, by the uh, overreach of the Vatican's power. In 1440, however, Lorenzo Valla published a treaty showing, showing by numerous historical and textual evidence that it was a fake. Um, political claims to... Uh, okay, so he found that the text was riddled with historical errors, um, even down to the the, um, the sign or the seal, the Pope, and different things that he considered it to be gold when they didn't. That it was actually fabric back in then. There was there's all kinds of uh, naming errors that were not uh, from Constantine. So it was it was obviously a fake and forgery. <clears throat> and this had a, a big upset during the Refor- during the Reformation. The reformers took hold of this and said, look. This is a classic example um, of uh, Vatican forging. Uh, there's also political claims to sovereignty, such as that were all proved to be forgeries. The apostolic constitutions, the apostolic canons, the Liber Pontificalis, the letter of St. Peter, the Vita Beta Silvestri, the Gesti Silvestri, the Constantum, Constantum, Titum Silvestri, um, the Samac- I'm probably butchering all these names, Samachian forgeries, the Decretals of Isidore, the Decretum of Gra- Gratian, among many others. So they had a long history of forging documents. Also, we have the various relics. Okay, Even back to the time of Augustine, relics were a problem, and he complained about that. Um, Calvin, during the Reformation, I love this, Calvin, uh, the only satire that Cal- Calvin was a funny guy, <laughs> okay, don't don't look at the pictures and think, oh man, so so austere. Um, <clears throat> he made fun of all the relics <clears throat> during the Reformation and wrote a little tract <clears throat> called "On the Advantages of in- in- Inventorying All the Relics." <laughs> It'd be such an advantage because then you could know which ones are really relics or not. <clears throat> because he talked about how, you know, if, if all, the, um, <clears throat> if all the, the fragments of the, of the cross of Jesus were collected, they would be shiploads of this wood. Um, and so obviously we have some problems here, of, uh, and we need an inventory for the relics. Um, <clears throat> so uh, then we have Codex 2427, it's considered um, this was considered category one manuscript <clears throat> because it was dated from the 1300s and matches exactly Codex Vaticanus. So we have a, a codex that was from the 1300s that matched Vaticanus. <clears throat> and as soon as it came onto the scene, it was considered category one. It's one of the best. You know, the lettering style is wonderful. 
However, um, it was shown, they, they ended up starting to pass it around and scientifically examine it. Okay. Now, I want you to know Vaticanus and Sinaiticus have yet to be scientifically examined for a date of the physical material. Okay. And in 2015, they scheduled, uh, this is it now, most of it is in the library in Britain, they scheduled to have it examined uh, chemically, and they backed out, they chickened out. Um, <clears throat> so the, this, this particular codex, Codex 2427, or Manuscript 972, it was shown in the, uh, by a, to be late 19th century forgery. One of its inks was shown through chemical analysis. The chemistry was done by Professor Mary Virginia Orna, that it used Persian blue pigment in some of the pictures. Prussian blue was invented in 1704 and not available for sale until the 1720s. Then Abigail Quaint got her hands on it and she chemically analyzed it, an expert in rare books, and was asked to, she was asked to analyze it. She found synthetic ultramarine blue, not made until the 1820. 1820, and zinc white, which was not made until after, an eight, after 1825. So all, all of this, the whole thing was, was blown up. It, it immediately dropped in, uh, in its uh, importance, um, and it no longer is considered, it is considered a, a forgery as well. So I just mentioned that because, um, because of, all of the all of the markings, the 15th century markings on Vaticanus. Now let's turn on turn to Sinaiticus. Okay, this was discovered by a man named um, Constantine von Tischendorf. The von was a little later added by the Tsar. Uh, um, was considered a noble at, because of his discoveries. He was a German textual scholar. He, um, the this this um, codex was discovered in a monastery at Mount Sinai. Now these, uh, we're gonna be talking about uh, Mount Anthos, but I'm gonna, um, I'm gonna put the words G-O here and G-O here because these are Greek Orthodox monasteries. And this is Roman Catholic art. Obviously Vaticanus was a Roman Catholic manuscript. This is a Greek Orthodox. Um, so, um, the contents is the most cor most corrected of any manuscript uh, of the of the scriptures, according to R. Scott McKinnick, the head of Western Heritage Collections at the British Library. Um, it has a ton. Every a lot, of, almost every page has words crossed out and corrected. Um, so there's many. I shouldn't say almost every page. There are certain sections where it is heavily, heavily corrected. Um, so it contains, it's a codex, so it's supposed to contain the entire Bible. However, it only has fragments of the, um, of the Greek Septuagint Genesis, fragments of Leviticus, most of numbers starting after chapter 5. Then it has fragments of Deuteronomy, fragments of Joshua and Judges, and then parts of First Chronicles. 
It then has Ezra, all the minor prophets, uh, Ezra through Nehemiah, Nehemiah, Esther, oh, I'm sorry, Ezra through Nehemiah, they're not minor prophets. Um, it has Esther, Tobit, Judith, first and fourth, and four Maccabees. It has Isaiah, so it does have some um, uh, uh, apocryphal books in there. Um, it has Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Lamentations, all the minor prophets, but except, except for Hosea. It has the Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Songs of Solomon, Wisdom of Solomon, Wisdom of Syriac. Wait a minute, Wisdom of Solomon, that's a little, that's also, um, uh, I believe that's uh, in the uh, Apocrypha. Wisdom of Syriac and Job. It has the entire New Testament, but then it ends, and it, and it continues at the, uh, at the end of the New Testament, right in the mid-page, continues with the Epistle of Barnabas, and the shepherd of Hermas. Now, the shepherd of Hermas and the epistle of Barnabas were never found in Greek. They were always Latin. But they, was, they were quoted by the Greek fathers in Greek. So we know that there was, there was an original Greek of shepherd of Hermas and the epistle of Barnabas. However, this was the very first Greek version of those two books that had ever been found. Okay. And we'll talk a little bit about the problems with that um, in a minute. Um, 1840, Tischendorf sets out on a blind quest for manuscripts. He's from Germany, and he sets out on a blind manuscript. Then this uh, blind, blind quest, this quest lasts for over five years, and he racks up. Uh, he has no money to his name other than some bills, <laughs> unpaid. And he's an academic, a poor academic um, he racks up over $5,000 in travel expenses. This is a pretty sizable amount um, of money back then um, uh, of expenses, according to his own admission. So the question becomes, who loaned him all that money? Um, in 1843, according to Dish Tischendorf, he was granted audience with Pope Gregory XVI. Also, Court Cardinal Mai received him with great recognition, as well as Cardinal Mezzafonti, the, um, uh, these are Jesuit uh, cardinals, and he was also the custodian of the Vatican Library. So the Pope granted Tischendorf access to Codex Vaticanus, a text that no Protestant had ever been allowed to come near to. At the time of Tischendorf's audience by the Pope, the Inquisition was, in full, is, was still uh, going on, and they were torturing the enemies of the church in the chambers and the dungeons of the Vatican. We know this because the horrors were later exposed by the anti-Catholic Italian general Garibaldi when he took Rome in 1849 and they opened up the dungeons and found all of the grisly things they were doing uh, as a part of the Inquisition. So the Inquisition was still, it had gone underground. It was not public. It was still going on. In fact, this, the Pope, Gregory XVI, was known as a ruthless uh, Pope, he had signed over 100 um, death warrants um, and, uh, and consigned many people to their death. Um, <clears throat> and May 8th, so that was May of, nine, or I'm sorry, that was 1843, okay? In May of eight, 1844, Gregory XVI issues his encyclical against Bible societies everywhere. So, wait a minute. They grant access of Tischendorf to come see Vaticanus, 
And at the same time, they are, are saying, Bible societies, stop spreading the Texas Receptus everywhere. These, these translations into the vulgar languages and that kind of thing. So there's a duplicity here going on. Something is wrong with the Roman, Roman Catholic Church. They have a double position here. They are supporting Vaticanus. Why? It's because it's their manuscript. It also supports the idea, because of its Latinism, that the Vulgate really was preserved by God, not the Greek manuscripts. Um, and so uh, they, are, they are kind of duplicitous here. In May of 1844, the same year that the, the, the Romans published their, uh, uh, oh no, the year after, no, I'm sorry, it's na- Vaticanus was actually published in, um, by Cardinal Mai. Get this straight here. in 1890. So, yeah, that was quite a bit later. Never mind. Okay, so in 1844, Tischendorf visits the monastery of St. Catherine at the supposed location of Mount Sinai in the Sinai Peninsula. So that's down here. We have uh, Mount Sinai. This is the the traditional position of Mount Sinai based on... uh, I won't get into that. Um, So anyways... Um, Tischendorf um, visits the monastery at the location of Mount Sinai. And let me go ahead and read to you the story of his account on this. Um, So I'll go ahead and read this from a book. Okay. This is Tischendorf's own words here. In visiting the library of the monastery in the month of May 1844, I perceived in the middle of a great hall a wide basket full of old parchments. And the librarian, who was a man of information, told me that two heaps of papers like these, moldering by time, moldered by time, had been already committed to the flames. What was my surprise to find amid this heap of papers a considerable number of sheets of a copy of an Old Testament in Greek, Septuagint, which seemed to be the most ancient that I had ever seen. The authorities of the convent allowed me to possess myself of a third of these parchments, or about 43 sheets, all the more readily as they were destined for the fire. But I could not get them to yield up possession of the remainder. The too lively satisfaction I had displayed had aroused their suspicions as to the value of their manuscript. Okay, so that was his story. Um, There... There are a couple problems with that story. Number one, vellum doesn't burn very well. <laughs> vellum uh, stinks. It would smolder and, and fill, uh, fill up with smoke, and it, it just doesn't burn um, very well. Um, and the story of the burning is denied by the monastery. These monks would treasure their manuscripts. Just, they were not in the habit of burning manuscripts. Um, he retrieves 129 leaves, being part of the sep- Septuagint, um, Old Testament in Greek, at which point he claims the attitude of the monks changed and they only allow him to take a third of them, uh, specifically 43 leaves. He returns to Europe 
and the 43 leaves are deposited in the University of Library of Leipzig in Germany. In 1846, he publishes their contents. In uh, 1845, and again in 1850, a Russian traveler, theologian, and archbishop, or archaeologist, Bishop uh, Porfirius Uspensky, visits St. Catherine's. During these visits, he examines Sinaiticus and maintained that it was relatively new Bible. On one such visit, he claims that the Sinaiticus was written on the finest white parchment, and this white parchment appearance also describes the 43 leaves that Tischendorf took with him <clears throat> and deposited in Leipzig by Tischendorf. Um, Tisch, uh, in 1853, Tischendorf visits the monastery a second time, but comes away empty-handed as he has not returned. He has not returned with the 43 uh, leaves that he borrowed, um, and. Uh, I say borrowed in parentheses, in quotes. In 1857, a fact is published of, of Vaticanus under the supervision of, of Mar, uh, Cardinal Mai. That, that's Vaticanus, not Sinaiticus. I only mention that because it's very suspicious that the two manuscripts that don't have the end of Mark are published right around the same time here. And, uh, so and then in 1859... So 1857, Vaticanus is finally made public through a facsimile. Okay. And that's where probably Westcott and Hort start to, to make their New, New Testament based on it. In 19, 1859, Tischendorf revisits St. Catherine's Monastery under the patronage of the Tsar of Alexander. Alexander Tsar Alexander finally somehow has some optimism that he'll be able to get his hands on the, on the, on the manuscript basically because he gives them a bunch of money to buy it. Okay. And on February 4th, the last day of his visit, he was shown the rest of Codex Sinaiticus, which now includes the, all of the, the New Testament books and you know, the epistle of Barnabas and uh, the shepherd of Hermas. And he's, he convinces them to sell that to the czar. Okay, for the for for Russia to be Greek Orthodox, Russia at that time is Greek Orthodox, uh, to sell to sell it to the Tsar. And, the, and when it eventually is all delivered over to the Tsar, they, uh, the Tsar does end up paying for the monastery for their for their manuscript. So, so that that's basically the picture that we have of Sinaiticus, the official story. Now I'm going to talk to you about a character that is somewhat clouded in conspiracy here, and that's the character of Simonides, a guy named Simonides. Um, this is take a lot of this contents taken from J.K. Eliot's 1982 book Codex Sinaiticus and the Simonides Affair, and he documents the correspondence of the 19th of the late 19th century. He goes back to a lot of the papers. They're publishing letters that go back and forth between Simonides and Tischendorf. So uh, he, he does believe that Sinaiticus is a 4th century document. However, he's known for his fairness on the topic. Simonides was considered an excellent paleographicalist, paleocalligraphist, sorry. Stu that's studying of handwriting of the past. He had no reverence nor love for the scriptures. However, he did have a, a great uncle, 
who was a theologian and versed in 12 languages in the Greek Orthodox Church. He was a professor. And as a professor, he was a professor of a, a town, in a town over here in Asia Minor, I forget the name of it. But he retires in Mount, Mount Athos. Now, Mount Athos is a major center for Greek Orthodox, um, for the Greek, Greek Orthodox Church. Now, has anybody heard of Mount Athos? If you were a Russian, you would know about Mount Athos. Mount Athos, uh, Putin has visit, visited Mount Athos um, not too long ago and declared Greek Orthodox to be the religion of Russia. Okay. Um, <clears throat> and, uh, and, and, and you can see that also that from various... Well, anyways, um, there's there is a I should say there is a resurgence of orthodoxy in the Russian church or in the Russian country, the country of Russia. I'll just leave it at that. <clears throat> but Athos has always been a center <clears throat> of it's it's a monastery. It has a lot of it's kind of a collection of a lot of manuscripts are there. But it's, it's heavily guarded. They won't let anybody into Mount Athos. Okay? And they keep very close records on who comes onto the island and who does and who leaves. Um, and uh, the monks there are, have, they've, they are very ascetic um, and live, there, live out their lives. And, uh, and um, yeah, it's, it's got a lot of history behind it. Um, so anyways this guy named Simonides he was cons- uh, his great uncle um, retired as, from a professor in 1890 and he li- 1819 and lived on Mount Athos Simonides claims he was commissioned in the 1840s at Mount Athos to write a book for Tsar Nicholas I of Russia Ma- um, Mount Athos is an island off the northeast coast of Greece. Um, it's an important center of Eastern Orthodox monasticism. The library at Mount Athos has had already prepared a manuscript years before for a collection of panegyrics, which is speeches or eulogies in honor of a person or a thing, but had never written on it. So they had this book that they had prepared a couple hundred years before of all of the, that were of vellum, it was clean, clean vellum. According to this is according to, to Simonides, and nobody had ever written on it. And this was they commissioned to make this. I think probably to gain favor with the czar, uh, maybe money um, or whatever. But um, they wanted to make a. It, Simonides was thinking it was not going to be a forgery. This was just going to be a reproduction of what an ancient manuscript would have looked like um, and given to the czar as a present. He also claims he saw the the manuscript later and was surprised to find it at Mount Sinai in 1852, another center with a monastic library uh, of the Greek Orthodox Church, and was surprised by its altered appearance. That's all he says. It says that it was altered. 
Okay. In 1855, Simonides turns up in Leipzig University with a Greek version of the Shepherd of Hermas. This was originally received with great excitement, and the document was given the name Codex Leipzensis, but it was soon discovered to be a back-translated from the 14th century Latin translation. Tischendorf was instrumental in pointing this out. Okay. Three, three years later, Tischendorf realized the shepherd of Hermas in the Sinaiticus was the exact same Greek of Simonides' Codex, Lepsius, when the side note corrections were made. This makes a direct link between Simonides' shepherd of Hermas and Sinaiticus. And so they are claiming, no, it's really, it's really 14th century uh, manuscript um, back translated from the Latin. But then when they find it in Sinaiticus, oh, it's 4th century. <laughs> um, so which one is it? And so Simonides had to backtrack his, his evaluation of Simonides' uh, version and say, oh yeah, it really is ancient. It really is 4th century. Um, so he's waffling back and forth. Um, so in 1860s, Simonides begins to make the claim to, to Sinaitic, that he wrote Sinaiticus. Um, he makes that public. His letter to the Guardian newspaper is published in September 3rd of 1862, where he explains his story. And this opens up an entire firestorm in the academic world between Simonides and Tischendorf. And for a while, uh, people are taking sides on different ones, and there, there's this big debate. And, and nobody knows what's going on. Uh, but eventually they side with Tischendorf. He seems to be an expert more than this, this uh, manuscript forger, Simonides. Um, so uh, <clears throat> Simonides even claimed to have placed certain private signs on particular leaves of the codex. He even provided a list However, when these leaves were inspected at St. Petersburg years later, when they actually get the complete manuscript sent to Russia, <clears throat> every place where he said that he had left a mark had been des destroyed in some way, either by wormholes or, or, uh, or something like that. So all his marks of authenticity had, were gone. However, a man named, this is bringing up to the current, more, more recent no, a couple of years later, after, after Simonides is, is out of the picture, uh, Spyridon Paulo Lampros was, was a history, of history professor of classical literature at the University of Athens. He was dean of the university twice. He also made a two-volume book called The Catalog of the Greek Manuscripts on Mount Athos, and he made that in 1895. In that book are listed Benedict, Simonides, and Kalinikos um, as being on the island together working on a project in March 27th in 1841. So here we have the story of Simonides is collaborated by an independent witness here, okay, giving a little bit more weight to this forger and that he was actually saying the truth. We don't know. I mean, do I believe Simonides? I don't know. I'm, not, I'm just trying to show you that there is, 
some debate here as to whether this was forged in the, in the 19th century or whether it's a 4th century document. Okay, so there are some problems with Sinaiticus. First of all, there's the coloring disparity between the British library sections that were stained and the, the ones that were sent to Leipzig were nice and white. Okay, so how do you explain the, the coloration differences? Um, there's visible streaking stained in the British section. There's the pristine white parchment in Leipzig when first delivered. There's the supple condition uh, of the document itself. The vellum is very flexible. Okay. Now, my wife and I were eating. Uh, cat, my wife likes to make one of my favorite desserts, which is lime jello with a little bit of ready whip sprayed on top. <clears throat> and we were eating that this week. And we started talking, where in the world does jello come from? Does anybody know where jello comes from? Gelatin? Uh, horses' hooves. Um, uh, we looked it up. It ends up, um, it does a source in hooves. It is in our bodies. It's what makes our flexible ligaments flexible. Um, it's, it's called um, collagen. Okay, and they get jello ends up getting their their collagen from peeps, uh, pig skin. Okay, from hide. Okay, hide has the reason why leather is so flexible, and as just like our bodies, as as we age, we lose our ability to have uh, to make collagen, and so our our wrinkles start showing a little bit more, um, our joints start to creak a little bit more, and we we grow old. <laughs> Um, but uh, collagen is lost in manuscript skins as well. And so basically what we found is Sinaiticus and Vaticanus both being, uh, well, I can specifically for Sinaiticus, the manuscripts are very, very supple. What does that mean? The collagen is still in there. It's not fourth century. Okay, it can't be supple. If you look at, you know, uh, Ancient manuscripts, even back to the like 1000s, it, it's cracking. There's they're, they're barely holding together. Um, uh, so yeah. Anyways, um, there's a lack of manuscript um, of, of or ink testing. There's no testing on no scientific testing has been available. Uh, there has not been done any tests on these two manuscripts. And then we have the cancellation leaves. There are these cancellation leaves, which show that the, the choirs, uh, which are these leaves of, of manuscripts, were removed in Mark, the ending of Mark, and were rewritten. Okay, So these choirs were removed, and a different scribe wrote the end of Mark. Except he, he's really scrunching his letters, and then he's starting to space them out really, really wide to kind of use up the rest of the space. He realizes he's scrunching it too fast. And uh, anyways, he rewrites uh, Mark. And that happens, um, yeah, uh, so that's in Sinaiticus, is the rewriting of Mark. Um, publication of, there's the problem of the uh, Sinaiticus Hermas, uh, published in 1855 by some Simonides. There's this, the problem of Simonides Barnabas in 1843 also matching the the Sinaiticus. 
There is the linguistic evidence of Hermas and Barnabas being late, as shown by James Donaldson's um, uh, research, um, that it was back, translated from the Latin. There is Tischendorf's retraction of his Latinization accusation against Simonides Hermas to try and save Sinaiticus' early dating. There's Tischendorf's thefts and lies. There's the text destruction of modern, by modern means, such as scissors and, uh, being uh, sliced up. There's square wormholes that were forgotten to be finished and, um, and made to look old. There are, um, there are wormholes in which the text is written around the wormhole. Um, and, uh, and there's uh, no evidence of the passage from, uh, of the wormholes from neighboring leaves. So a wormhole normally would travel, like you heard bookworms, they, they would travel through several leaves, but there's, it doesn't match any of the leaves. The wormholes are all, all over the place, but they never match. Um, and uh, there, uh, there's letters overwritten um, after being washed. So you'll have a couple leaves that, are, that look like they've been streaked and washed, and then a couple leaves that are nice and clean and crisp, and then another couple leaves that are washed and it, it, it wouldn't age so ununiformly as that. So what is my uh, conclusion? Um, the wisdom of this world denies the doctrine of the preservation of Scripture. They would maintain that the church has been kept from the words of her Lord for over 20 centuries and still left today searching for them. Confessional bibliology, that's the, the bibliology found in the, our Westminster Confession of Faith, asserts that the church has had every jot, every tittle, every Greek iota supernaturally and providentially preserved for the church. We have been commissioned to disciple the nations. How do we disciple the nations? We read how Paul discipled the nations. What did he do? By the, by the weak means of preaching. What did he preach? What do preachers preach today? The word of God. What is the foundation of preaching? Our Greek and Hebrew manuscripts are the foundation. And so the God-appointed means, are we then to say that that manuscript is not there? That it is lost? that has not been found yet. Um, the two so-called oldest and therefore best manuscripts that form the basis of today's critical text have major, major problems. They both bear the hallmarks of forgeries and come from a long history of forgeries. Modern scholars do not abide by Metzger's number one principle. And this is from Metzger. I'll quote Metzger. Of greater importance, however, from the age of the document itself are the date and character of the type of text that it embodies. Quite true. You know, sometimes the lettering style, such as a lettering style uh, uh, that's ancient, is, can sometimes help date it. But then he goes on to say this. As well as the degree of care taken by the copyist while producing the manuscript, we are left wondering why the most corrected codex ever found is considered category one. Um, so I'll open it up with uh, some questions. Any, anybody have some questions? Yeah, Philip. You said the British Library, is that the British Library? 
Uh, I'm not exactly sure. Yeah, they bought. They bought them. Ended up buying the manuscript from uh, from Russia, and that's why the Old Testament portion. I'm sorry, most of the Old Testament, not the 43 leaves, that's still in Leipzig, but the rest of the Old Testament plus the New Testament um, is housed in the uh, in the British Museum. So they would or British. They would have that from the start. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you may be wondering, that's a great question. You may be wondering why, because the Texas Receptus are from the Byzantine Empire, which is the Greek Orthodox Church. So why are the Greeks messing, messing around? Well, why... You know, why is this coming from, from Greece or from the Greek Orthodox? Well, you got to understand, um, Benedict, he was a progressive. Um, in fact, we find that Constant, he was under church discipline from Constantinople for being a progressive because he started to buy in to the German liberals of the time. And, and so him and the university that he taught at were very progressive. And so that's... So even the Eastern Church was starting to buy into um, the the, uh, the textual criticism and the modernism of the day. Yeah, uh, Pastor Sharp. Or, uh, um, yeah, John. Hey, I guess we have a question. Do you know what the either Greek Orthodox or the Rokor or any of them do they have a church tradition where they which text they go by? Which yeah, they go by the TR. Okay. Yep. Okay. Yep. So T- today, traditional today, they they even go by the t- they don't even go by the um, majority text. They go by the Texas Receptus. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Now, yeah. So they're the Orthodox side of the Greek Orthodox. <laughs> it, it's still Orthodox. Uh, and I don't think Elizabeth answered your question very well. What you were saying? What? Um, what translations or what churches? Right. Denomination. Well, well, the tr- all the modern translations today are based on these two these two manuscripts, uh, Codex Vaticanus. Uh, by and large, are based on Vaticanus and Sinaiticus. So everything like the, uh, it started with like a um, uh, RSV, uh, NAS, um, the NIV, the um, the Living Bible, the. Uh, uh, which really is not a Bible, it's more of a commentary. Um, and the um, ESV are all based on these modern, oldest is best, you know. And that's what, that's what we've been given. Now the, now the King James and the New King James are still based on the Texas Receptus, as well as there might be some obscure uh, translations out there, that, but um, those are the popular ones. Any other questions? I think we're running out of time, so I'll go ahead and close with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your, your wisdom. And we pray, Lord, that you would protect the church from being deceived by the wisdom of this world. Your wisdom does not compare to the wisdom of this world. And we pray, Lord, that you would, be, that you would guide us, you would direct us, and we trust in your word that you will providentially preserve your word. We look forward to hearing from it today. In Jesus' name. Amen.